Well, amen. Good morning, church. Great to see you this morning. My name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a delight to be worshiping with you in this Advent season. Uh, Let me encourage you to pull out your copy of Scripture. We're going to be in the Old Testament this morning. I warned you last week we'll be in a new series here in the month of December. That's not a warning. That's just an invitation, right? Uh, So uh, here we are. Uh, We'll be in a series this month called Waiting, an Advent Guide to Hope. And so we'll be in Isaiah chapter 61. Uh, If you go into the middle of your Bible, you'll hit the Psalms, go just a little bit to the right, uh, you'll get to Isaiah. And uh, we'll be in chapter 61, verses 1 through 3 this morning. As we dive in, I want to just mention a couple of things to you. One, uh, I mentioned a while back, a group of us are going to be going to Israel uh, here this spring. And if that at all interests you still, there's still some spots open. So I just want you to be aware. Uh, if you'd like to go see the Holy Land, and uh, it'll be a rich time of uh, being with the Lord, being with each other, and seeking uh, God in that place in a very special way, I just encourage you to let me know. Uh, shoot me an email. You can find my email on our website and would love to take you with us. We're going to have a great time. Also, I, I want you to know that we're in a process for searching for a pastor of disciple-making here at Cornerstone. And uh, we're grateful for the Lord's provision thus far. Uh, We're in the process of talking to several candidates, and we'll be doing some interviews here at the beginning of January. And I just want to invite you to continue to pray for God's provision and God's direction in that process. Uh, So would you do that? Would you pray about that uh, here as as it comes to mind here in the coming weeks and months? This will be a critical time uh, for us. Well, I wonder, uh, when was the last time you asked this question or you heard this question, how long is this going to take? Anybody asked that recently? Uh, I, I stood in line at Fleet Farm a while back, and I wondered that myself. It's a common question in my life. Uh, how long is it going to take? And wh- whether it's sitting down for a meeting at work, uh, we had a long meeting this week. I led it. It was my fault, but it was long. I'm sure some people in that meeting asked, how long is it going to take? Uh, whether it's sitting down at the doctor's office waiting to hear my name, or, or even stopped at a red light, I'm prone to ask, how long is this going to take? Uh, Christy often asks me that when I'm cooking meat. I don't cook very well at all, but I do cook meat, and uh, we're trying to coordinate, and poor Christy has to wait for me, and she often asks, how long is this going to take? And I, my answer is, I have no idea. I, it'll just, uh, I'm, not, I'm not very good at that. <laughs> I remember asking that when I was a kid on Christmas Eve. Anybody uh, been to a Christmas Eve service as a kid? And remember, for, for our family, we opened presents Christmas Eve night after the service, and so uh, I remember sitting there in kind of our old church building in Bismarck, North Dakota, and, and leaning over to my mom and saying, Mom, how long is this going to take? Would he just stop talking so we can go home? Uh, it's a common question, okay? Now, we know that waiting is often a necessary part of our lives, but I, I wonder if you've ever considered this. I wonder if you've ever considered why waiting is worth it in some situations and not in others. See, see, we make selective decisions about what we wait for. I've been at the store, and I thought, that line is way too long. I don't really need this thing. I'm going home, all right? Uh, we, we, we select what we wait for. And the, the, the reality is, is that some things are worth more than others. And friends, here's the thing. We, we only wait for that which really matters to us, okay? We, we wait at the doctor's office because we want to be healthy, right? We wait for an oil change because we happen to need our cars to get around. We If we're a little kid at Christmas Eve waiting for presents, well, (laughs) need I say more, right? This week, I I came across a really interesting story about a guy who is waiting, okay? This is a guy who is in a long-distance relationship with a gal, and and of course, if you've ever dated somebody in a long-distance context, you know that it can be rough, and and to make matters more complicated, this this guy actually lived in Holland and was, was dating a gal from China. 
okay? And, and so it's a long ways away. And eventually, his heart just couldn't take it anymore. He had to go see this gal. And so he booked a plane ticket, and he flew 5,000 miles to see her. Now, he sent her a copy of his itinerary, but, but when he arrived at the airport, he, he couldn't find her. She was nowhere to be found. She wasn't anywhere. And convinced that she'd eventually come for him, this guy decided to stay at the terminal and wait for her. And he waited patiently a long time, a really long time. In fact, 10 days later, this frail-looking man was hauled off to the hospital, and he was still wondering, where was she? Okay. Now, a Chinese TV team picked up on this story, and they actually found the gal, and they asked her, why didn't you show up at the airport? And she said, well, I thought he was telling a joke. I didn't think he was actually coming. It's a bummer for that guy, right? A big bummer. But friends, we're willing to wait for what we value, aren't we? We're willing to wait for, for what we hope for. And that, that's really what waiting is. That, that's, that's what we, we, we call waiting for what we value. We call it hope. We wait for what we hope for. And, and here's the reality. See, many of us are waiting for some tough things, okay? Many of us are waiting for some challenging things in our life. I actually talked to a couple people this morning that expressed they're, they're waiting for something. Some of us are waiting for a breakthrough in our marriage, in our marriages. You know, it's been a long time. It's been 10, 20, 30 years, and it seems like things are still going the same way that they've always been, and, and we're waiting for a breakthrough. Is this thing ever going to turn? Some of us are, are waiting for wayward children, children who've, who've walked away from the Lord or maybe even walked away from us and we're wondering, are they, are they ever going to come back to the Lord? Are they ever going to come back to their family? Some of us are waiting for a breakthrough in our jobs. Our jobs are really tough and we're, and we're tired of what we're experiencing and it's causing us trauma and we're not sure we can take it anymore. We're, we're waiting for something to change. Others of us are waiting on our health. I mean, we're struggling with health. We, we take a step forward, maybe two, but all of a sudden something sets us back and we're worse off than we were before. We're, we're waiting for, for that to come to, to a resolution. Some of us are, are waiting for relief from despair, from depression, from anxiety, from, from other forms of sadness. We're just sad and we're waiting to feel better and, and we don't. And the process can be long and it can be painful. And we start to wonder, is this thing ever going to change? Am I ever going to feel better? Is this ever going to go in the way that I think it should? How long is this going to take? And as we enter into yet another Christmas season, I'm convinced we can do one of two things with our waiting. Okay? We can go one of two directions. First, we can do what a lot of people do with their waiting. We can cover it up. Okay, we can kind of medicate it. And, and at Christmas, it's easy to do that. There's lots of opportunities for distraction. We can throw another party. We can, we can you know, de- decorate our house. And we can, we can uh, you know, buy a bunch of gifts. We can book another vacation. Uh, we can forget about what we're waiting for in a variety of ways. And, and it's not that there's anything innately wrong with any of those things. And yet they can be a distraction, right? Or the alternative. There, there's an alternative. See, we can remember that Christmas is really about a people who waited for God and about a God who met his people in their waiting. And in that, as we once again uh, see the culmination of God's glorious plan for the universe, starting there in that manger, leading to the cross and leading beyond the cross to, to a future coming of Christ when all will have resolution, we have hope in our waiting friends. And that's my goal for our time together over this next month, to encourage you during this season of Advent that there is something worth waiting for. (laughs) 
In fact, there's somebody worth waiting for. And you know what his name is? It's Jesus. That's always a good answer in church. That's always a good answer. But it's so true. Friends, for, for a long time, the church has called this season the season of Advent. Okay? This is a season of Advent. Now, we, we say that. We have Advent wreaths, Advent candles, Advent services. We're not always sure what that means. Advent simply means coming. Okay? It means coming. This is the season of the coming of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the time that, that we anticipate Jesus' birth. And as we wait for December 25th, we're reminded that we're also waiting for a second Advent. See, Christ came in his first Advent. He came in the manger. He came born of a Virgin Mary. He's coming again. There will be a second Advent. And and because of what happened in the first Advent, we have hope for the second. And friends, as we experience waiting for Christ during this Advent season, my prayer is that it will increase our hope, that it will lead us having a greater confidence that the God who met us in the first Advent will be the God who meets us in the second And friends, that it'll be worth the wait. It'll be worth the wait. That's going to be our goal for these next several weeks. And and my prayer is that that this will be a guide to hope in troubled times. And so with that in mind, I want us to appreciate the significance of what it means to wait for Christ during this Advent season. And I want us to go back to what it was like for the people of Israel to wait for their Messiah, for Jesus, during that time leading up to the first Advent, to the birth of Christ. And to do that, we're, we're going to examine a passage from this book of Isaiah that had become a central pillar of the messianic hope of the people of Israel, of their hope for a coming Messiah. This was, this was a passage that they would have understood as a promise of a future coming of a Messiah. And so with that, let's read it. If you would turn in your copy of scripture, Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 3. Here's what Isaiah writes. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. <laughs> what a glorious passage. I'm excited to dive into it here with you this morning. And here's what you need to know as we try to unpack this passage together. See, Isaiah was a prophet of the southern kingdom of Judah during the time when the nation of Israel was split into two parts. In the north, we had Israel, and in the south, we had Judah. And so Isaiah is preaching to this southern nation of Judah during a rather disconcerting time for the people of Israel. See, in the north, uh, the, the kingdom of Assyria had come down the Fertile Crescent and had attacked the northern kingdom and it had carried them off into exile. They, they were experiencing judgment for their, 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 their walking away from Yahweh, walking away from God's covenant. And here they were out in the nether regions uh, experiencing judgment of God at the hand of the nation of Assyria. And though the southern kingdom had managed thus far to, to kind of weasel their way out of the same fate, Isaiah comes along with a troubling message. And he says, look, that same judgment that you saw happen in the northern kingdom, that's going to be your fate too. 
Uh, repent, but, but, but you're going you're gonna to face this judgment. And yet, in the midst of Isaiah, there's this beautiful hope stream running throughout, especially the second half of the book. And so Isaiah says, yes, you'll be judged, but there's hope. In fact, there's a servant who's coming who will save you if you put your faith and trust in him. He's going to deliver you. And so as you can imagine, this passage proved incredibly important for the people of Judah, especially as they started to see Isaiah's words coming true, especially as they started facing the judgment that he promised. See, eventually in 586 BC, uh, the nation that had conquered the Assyrians, the Babylonians, came down that same fertile crescent, but went a little further. And they got to Judah and they attacked Jerusalem and they ransacked the city and they ransacked the temple and they carried off its people into exile for a period of 70 years. And I wonder, just to sort of put this in context, can you imagine the city of Marshfield being surrounded by a vast army? Can you imagine tanks and, 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 and different troopers and, 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 and infantry surrounding us and, and putting our, our city under siege for a long period of time where people are suffering, where women, men, children are being ravaged, where people are hungry, and eventually they move in and they, they level the city. They, they tear down all the, the city buildings. They, they ransack the churches and they march us over 600 miles across the desert to become a part of a culture that's completely foreign to us. It was devastating for the people. It was devastating. And yet during that exile, the people, amidst their asking, how long is this going to take? How long, God, are you going to let us suffer the consequences of our sin? Isaiah's prophecy about a coming Messiah would have brought incredible comfort. Incredible comfort. Again, Isaiah 61.1. Listen to this. He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to what? To bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Friends, these are hopeful words to a needy people. Amen? These are hopeful words. The anointed one, the, the Messiah, the one on whom the Spirit of the Lord rests, he's coming. And yet the question remained how, how long is this going to take? And of course, the people of Judah returned to their homeland some 70 years after they were exiled. They had 70 years of captivity. They came back. And that was good. And there was much to celebrate about that. And yet, it wasn't the same. And there was still no Messiah. And after hundreds of years of, of waiting, and after experiencing setback after setback, including the, the silence of the Lord in many ways, there was a Greek ruler, Greek, uh, the, uh, the nation of Greece conquered the nation of Persia, which conquered Babylon. We can go back to our Old Testament history another time. But here Greek is in, Greece is in control. And this man named Antiochus IV Epiphanes marches into Jerusalem and he again desecrates the people of God. He, he, he desecrates the temple by sacrificing a pig on its altar. It was awful for the Hebrew people. And then after that, Rome comes into power. And again, the people are under Rome, Roman brutality and occupation. And they're wondering, when's the Messiah coming? How long is this going to take? How long do we have to endure what we're experiencing, oh God? And of course, it's the question that dominates the culture as we open the pages of the New Testament. The people are tired. They're struggling under Roman oppression. They're, 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 they're over it. <laughs> rebellion after rebellion have risen up through in Palestine and, and rebellion after rebellion have been quenched, have been obliterated by the Roman authorities. And perhaps they're scared and they're still wondering, how, how long is this going to take? 
But then almost out of nowhere, the, the rumors start. They begin. Let's just say you're living in Nazareth. And you've heard about this man named Jesus, this, this man who spent the same uh, childhood walking in the neighborhood that you live. And you know him as the son of Mary and of Joseph, but, but you've heard that he's been wandering around Palestine, teaching in synagogues, and, and of all things, doing miracles. And the rumors are spreading, and you're wondering, could, could this be the promised one of Isaiah? Could Jesus actually be the Messiah? And just as you would have been mulling over these questions, the gates of the city open, and there comes Jesus strolling through. There he is. And he, he marches over to the synagogue, and you think, I got to hear this. And you follow him into the synagogue, and you sit down, and you ready yourself for the teaching that you'll experience from this man who grew up in your neighborhood. <laughs> and as the rabbi hands him a scroll with the words of Isaiah, something registers for you. Isaiah, really? Is he going to say it? Is he going to make the claim? And sure enough, he opens the scroll and he finds himself in our passage for this morning. Listen to what he says, Luke 4, 18 to 21. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is Jesus reading from Isaiah in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Friends, where have we heard that? <laughs> then the text says, and he, and he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down, which is the place where Hebrew teachers would, would teach from. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. <laughs> What's he going to say? And he began to teach them saying, today, this scripture, the one, whom Isaiah had, had been, the, peop, the one from Isaiah on whom Israel had been hanging on for centuries, this important passage for the Hebrew people, he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What just happened here? I mean, your mind is blown. If you're sitting there in that synagogue, you can't believe what Jesus just said. You heard him. <laughs> He said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, that guy from Isaiah, that one we've been waiting for, that we've been hoping for, that we've been praying for, that we've been looking for, guess what? This guy's making a claim that he's the guy, that he is the Messiah, that he's the anointed one who's come to proclaim good news. Jesus just claimed to be the Messiah here in Luke chapter 4. And the question immediately confronts you. Okay then, what now? What do we do with that claim? And, and friends, as we wait to hear how the Nazarenes respond, I want us to go back to this passage from Isaiah. This one from which Jesus quotes. And, and I want us to discern what promises Jesus claims to fulfill here. In other words, what were the people waiting for? And what do they find in Jesus? And I think you'll be encouraged. And so I, I want to just go back to Isaiah 61 and, and I want to read the whole thing one more time, okay? Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 3. Not the whole chapter, all right? Whew. All right, good. <laughs> it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, 
to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. (laughs) Friends, how often do we walk in and praise when we worship the Lord and our spirits are lifted? Our faint spirit gets replaced. That happens to me sometimes, not always. But praise God for that. That they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. that he may be glorified. Church, I want you to notice the condition of Isaiah's audience here, okay? I want want you to notice their condition. He calls them poor. He calls them poor. And certainly the poor are those who are economically impoverished, those who lack material resources. But this isn't just a reference to those who who don't, don't have enough money to put food on the table. It's also about those who are humble and those who've been humbled, like in 2 Samuel twenty two twenty eight, where towards the end of his life, King David recognizes, you save a humble people. It's the same word as a poor people. But your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. Friends, you, you might be here this morning, and you might be convinced that your sin, that your shame is too much for God. You might be convinced that that you've maybe committed the unpardonable sin or or that your background is so full of shame God could never even look at you, that God couldn't possibly forgive you, that your predicament is beyond hope. Well, I have good news for you, friends. God saves a humble people, a people who are willing to admit that, a people who are poor. Good news, the Messiah has come for you. Isaiah also says in verse 1, he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. I wonder this morning, are you sad? You struggle with depression? You struggle with with despair? Have you lost somebody you love recently? Are you wrestling with your own mortality as you grow older? Are you a new parent? And you're wondering, how can I do this? I can't possibly measure up to the example set by my parents. I have good news for you. The Lord came to bind up the brokenhearted. The Messiah has come for you too. Not only that, verse 1 also says that he came to proclaim liberty to captives. He he came to proclaim the opening of the prison to those who are bound. I wonder, do you feel enslaved to your situation? Maybe to your economic situation? Maybe your, your parents' view of you? Maybe you even feel enslaved to your sin. Like, you just can't get over it. You can't get past your addiction, whether it's porn or, or alcohol or drugs. Jesus says, friends, in John eight thirty one and 32, listen, if you abide in my word, you truly are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then in verses 34 and 36, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Yes, that's true to be sure. And yet the slave does not remain in the house forever. Friends, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That is good news. Amen. If you're a prisoner to your sin, if you feel enslaved to it, good news. The Messiah has come. He's done what's necessary to set you free from that sin. The Messiah has come for you. And friends, some of us have been poor. Some of us have been broken. Some of us have been imprisoned for a long time. And we keep asking, how long is this going to take? Good news, friends. The Messiah has come for you. But church, I want you to notice something here. 
And, and, and to, to, to do this, we're going to go back to the Luke passage. I want you to notice how Jesus quotes this passage from Isaiah. Okay? I want you to notice some of the detail here. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus ends in verse 19 with this statement. He says, He's anointed me, among other things, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That, that's where Jesus ends. Now, if you would have been in that synagogue that day, you likely would have had the book of Isaiah memorized, at least significant portions of it, depending on who you were. Okay? You, would have, you would have been tracking along with Jesus. And so in your mind, you're reciting right along with them, yeah, I got that, and yeah, I got that, and yeah, I got... Wait a minute. Why'd he stop there? Why'd he stop? See, in the book of Isaiah, we read not just the year of the Lord's favor, but also what it says in Isaiah, and the day of vengeance of our God. And you'd have been waiting for that. You like that part. You know why? That's the part when God comes and overthrows all the evil people, all the evil empires, the Romans, they're going to be no more. You're excited about the day of vengeance of our God because you're convinced it applies to those Romans and they're going to get what's theirs, praise God. But church, Jesus doesn't continue in that phrase. He just stops abruptly. He doesn't quote the whole thing. And so you're left there wondering, why not? Is he the Messiah or not? Doesn't he know there's more? But here's what's really cool. And here's what's helpful to know. Jesus understood something that his listeners didn't. Okay? Jesus understood that his advent, that his coming, would exist in two parts. That there would be a first advent and then there would be a second advent. In, in his first advent, Jesus brought the year of the Lord's favor. And friends, Christ's provision in his first advent was good news for the poor and for the brokenhearted and for the prisoner and for the captive. That was good news. Christ's provision was for those people in his first advent. And see, in his first advent, he solved our bondage to sin. The reality is, is that all of us fit into one of those categories or another. And, and Christ's good news solved our sin problem in his first advent. By his death and through his resurrection, he delivered us into the year of the Lord's favor. Like the captives in the Old Testament who were set free during the year of Jubilee, Jesus' entrance into humanity, Jesus' work at Calvary ushers us in to the year of the Lord's favor, the year of freedom, the age where we're no longer obligated to our sin and our guilt. Instead, our obligation was placed on Jesus and Jesus solved it at the cross. And friends, this is a now provision. <laughs> this is a provision for today. We don't have to wait for this to happen any longer. Jesus' work applies now. And so 2 Corinthians 5.17 can say, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Friends, because of what Christ accomplished in his first advent, we're, we're set free from the ultimate consequence of sin. Praise God. But not only that. See, we're also equipped to experience new life in Christ. And so Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, we'll, we'll get to this sometime down the road in our study in the Gospel of John. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, present tense. Friends, this is a now reality. That as we learn to walk in the Spirit, as, as we're filled by the Spirit, as we're commanded to in Ephesians 5, as we're obedient to the Word of God, amazingly, our lives do get better. They get better. 
Not necessarily easier, mind you, but better. The peace of God that passes understanding begins to take a hold of us in a new way. And we begin, as Paul in the book of Philippians, to find contentment in any and every situation, whether shipwrecked or hungry or impoverished or whatever it is, rejected. We can find contentment in, any, in, any, in every situation because of the work that Christ has done for us now, because our hope rests not in our situation, but our hope rests in Jesus, friends. And that's good. That's powerful. Jesus does make our lives better when we turn to him. These things are true. And yet, here's another reality. See, in Luke, Jesus is, is clear. At, at his first advent, he came to bring favor, not vengeance. He wasn't here in his first advent to vanquish sin. He wasn't here to overthrow the Romans. And I'm convinced that he stopped quoting Isaiah at the year of the Lord's favor because his ultimate judgment of sin wasn't his purpose in his first advent. And friends, the book of Revelation describes a future time of great tribulation and judgment when Jesus will return the second time and he'll cast Satan eventually after that time of tribulation, after a time of the millennial kingdom, and he'll cast Satan and all his demons and all whose names are not written in the book of life into an eternal lake of fire. And that, at Jesus' second advent, will be the day of vengeance of our God. Sin will be vanquished once and for all. Evil empires will be a thing of the past. They'll be overthrown and will no longer simply have to be content to, in, in hardship and equipped for the waiting. But amazingly, the hardship will be removed. Now, does that mean there are no more lines at Fleet Farm? I don't know. But we're going to be okay with it. Praise God. The waiting's going to be over. The text says that lion and lamb will dwell together. It's amazing. And so friends, yes, Christ's provision is for now. But it's also for the not yet. It's also for the not yet. When Jesus comes the second time, he's going to replace our ashes with beauty. He's going to replace our mourning with gladness. He's going to replace our faint spirit with confident praise. And yet in the meantime... Between the first and the second advent, we still ask, we still struggle. How long is this going to take, Lord? I'm hurting. When are you coming back? When are you going to fix this? Friend, as you wait, I want to offer three specific responses to that question. What can be our response here? And the first is this be honest. Be honest about what you're struggling with. I'm so grateful for passages like this one in Isaiah that, that give voice to our predicament. Some of us are poor. Some of us are brokenhearted. Some of us are mourning. We're struggling. It's okay to be honest, friends. David was honest before the Lord. I think he got more honest the longer his life went on. Psalm 13, 1 and 2, he said, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Friends, when you're struggling, it's okay to cry out to the Lord. In fact, I think it's more than okay. I think it's necessary. How long is my marriage going to suffer? How long will my kids be wayward? How long will this job crush my spirit? 
Friend, be honest about your need. Isaiah was. David was. A whole host of Old Testament writers and new were. You can be too. You can be honest about how long this takes. It's hard. But then, and this is critical, be receptive. Be honest, yes, but be receptive. Receptive to what? Receptive to Christ's provision. He provides for you. He's availed himself to you. It's fascinating. In Luke 4, Jesus describes two situations where Gentiles, not Israelites, not Jews, were receptive to God's provision. One was a widow from Sidon. And she wasn't afraid to admit her need. And so when God provided Elijah to come to her, she was willing to receive what Elijah and what God was offering through Elijah. And so she had enough oil and flour to survive. Another one was a Gentile leader named Naaman. He was leprous. And he was struggling. And, and God sent the prophet Elisha to Naaman. And he gave Naaman very specific instructions. Naaman was willing to do what God required of him so that he could be healed. He was receptive to God's provision. But church, here in Jesus' hometown, in this place called Nazareth, the people were anything but receptive. And rather than getting honest about their need and receptive to what Jesus was offering, they, like their ancestors, who, 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 who didn't receive what God was providing, instead these Gentiles did, they, like their ancestors, became indignant. They just couldn't get over their pride. They couldn't let this hometown boy, this, this man named Jesus, who grew up in their neighborhood, actually be the Messiah. actually provide in ways that only he could. And so they took, the, took him outside the city and they prepared to throw him off a wall, throw him off a cliff and stone him. They rejected Christ. They weren't receptive. They rejected him. Praise God, verse 30 says, but passing through their midst, he went away. People were asking, how long is this going to take? And when God finally sent his son to be their Messiah, they missed it. They rejected him. They, and Jesus went away from them, and he went to another town that was more receptive. Friends, ultimately, and this is really important, ultimately, only those who receive what God provides can benefit. You must receive what God provides. What does God provide? He provides a Messiah. He provides a savior to solve our sin problem in a way that only he could. You must receive Jesus in order to benefit from his kingdom. And so the question for you and me today is this. Are we receptive to Christ's provision? Are we receptive to what Jesus offers? Jesus died for our sin. Jesus died to cover our shame. And John 1, Jesus said, Yet as many as receive him, John actually writes this, talking about Jesus, Yet as many as receive him, to them who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. Are we willing to receive what Christ offers? Are we willing to be honest about our need? That's hard sometimes, isn't it? It's hard sometimes to admit, you know what, I've messed up again. I can't do it. I can't solve my sin problem. I need you, Jesus, to fix this. Are we willing to be receptive to him? Not to go to self-help books. There's perhaps nothing wrong with those by themselves. Not to go take the counsel of a friend, although we need friends sometimes. All the time, right? 
But ultimately, the solution to our problem is not what anything in the world offers. It's what Jesus offers. There's only one person in all the universe that could do what Jesus did. Will we be receptive to what he provides? And then, friends, once we are, here's the thing, and this is, this is something we don't always like to think about, but it's a reality. We need to, to, to be, to be uh, patient, friends. We need to be patient. We need to be honest. We need to be receptive, and, and we need to be patient. Remember, it was 700 years between Isaiah writing what he did and the coming, the first advent of Jesus Christ. And here we are, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus' first advent until now. We need to be patient, friends, and remember what, what Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3, 8, 9, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Friends, God has a, has a, has a scheme, he's accomplishing something according to his purposes, and to him, a thousand years is a blink. We need to remember that. Listen to what else Peter says. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Praise God. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Church, Christ's now provision is enough to sustain us. But be patient. His not yet provision is going to finish the job. How long is this going to take? Friends, as long as it takes for God to finish his work, God desires that all that he has chosen will come to repentance and faith. And he's willing to wait. Are, are you? Am I? And friends, this is why we celebrate Advent. We celebrate Advent to remind us that the Christ who came the first time, praise God, he's coming again. And he's going to finish the job. And in that, we have hope. And friends, as we wait in hope, look what Isaiah says about our purpose. The last part of verse 3 in Isaiah 61. Our purpose is that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. I love that imagery. That he, that God, may be glorified. Church, we often wonder, how long is this going to take? How, how much more can I endure? But as we embrace our role together to be the planting of the Lord, friends, in the now, that as we function together as oaks of righteousness, not, not easily shaken, not easily blown over, friends, we have an incredible opportunity in God's grand design. We have an opportunity to stand firm in troubled times as beacons of God's glory. Friends, you and I have the privilege of becoming instruments of peace and hope in this troubled world. <laughs> you know, I've got deer stands out in the woods, and I, I think I'm finally wrapped up in the hunting season. I give up, all right? Uh, but I have deer stands in different places. I have one stand that I sit in quite a bit. It's in a cottonwood tree. And a cottonwood tree is relatively young out in the woods. And some of you arborists know more than I do, so forgive me if I butcher it. But, but I, I think I'm right on this, all right? A cottonwood tree is fairly young, and I sit up in that tree, and, and when the wind blows, guess what? <laughs> so does my tree stand, all right? I go back and forth with that. It can be a little disconcerting sometimes. I'm glad I'm strapped in. I do strap in, honey. <laughs> but I have another stand that we just set up this year, and it's in a different tree. It's in a white oak tree. And this tree's big, and it's old, <laughs> and it's really wide. I couldn't even use the, the, the kit that the stand came with in order to strap to it. I had to bring my own cinch strap, right? And when I sit in that tree, it doesn't matter how, how hard the wind blows. 
that tree is firm and, and, and solid. And I know I'm safe. I know I'm safe. Church, you and I have the privilege, have the responsibility, have the joy of functioning as oaks of righteousness in the midst of the waiting. And as we do, we have the privilege of engendering peace and confidence to a watching world that that sometimes, let's be honest, feels like it's out on a limb. Amen? Sometimes we we feel like we're, we're out here hanging off. Nobody's watching. Guess what? We know who's watching. We have a Savior, a Messiah who came for us. He's come for them too if they would but turn in faith to Jesus. Friends, I I know the conditions are tough. I I know it's been a long time. But but as we consider this first advent of Christ, let's be prepared for the second. (laughs) Let's put our hope in the second. Let's be honest about our sin and our need. Let's be receptive to what God provides in Christ. And let's be patient as we wait for Him. Church, (laughs) the people of Nazareth rejected Christ. They tried to stone him. They couldn't stomach what he offered. What are you going to do? He stands before you. And I'm convinced that if you're honest and you're receptive and you're patient, he'll meet you. He'll come to you by his spirit. He'll renew you, reshape you according to his good design. And friends, God will be glorified and I promise you, you will not regret it. You can have hope and the world will benefit and so will you. Now, in just a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And so I'm going to invite you to to reflect on these three invitations, to be honest, to be receptive, and to be patient. I'm going to invite you to to open, not not yet, but as, as we're getting prepared here to open your your elements and be prepared to take them. And I'll lead you through that in a moment. But I want to remind you or perhaps point out to you if this is your first time celebrating communion with us. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've been receptive to what he's offered, if you put your faith and hope in what he accomplished at Calvary at the cross, then you're welcome at the table. We only ask that if there's anything that depends on you that that is wrong with another believer in Christ uh, here in the church, that you make that right and next time then you come and receive the supper. But friends, let me invite you to, to bow your head and to close your eyes and, and to spend some time with the Lord. And if you forget the questions, they're up on the screen. Be honest, be receptive, be patient and invite God to speak to you in these ways. And I'll get your attention here in a moment.
Church, the scriptures teach that as we come to the table, we're to examine ourselves. We're to be honest with God about our sin. I hope you've done that. And then they teach that Christ's body broken for us, that Christ's blood poured out for us is, is sufficient for our salvation. And I pray that as you receive these elements, you're reminded of what Christ accomplished for you at the cross. I pray that you're receptive to that. And then be patient. And there's this glorious ending. I read it every month when we, when we celebrate the supper. But there's this glorious ending to Paul's teaching about the supper. And he says this. He says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, For whenever you eat this bread and whenever you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until when? Until he comes. Until he, that's the second advent, friends. So be patient. And wait for him. And know that in the waiting, God provides through Christ. And so with that in mind, would you take your elements? And I remind you of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray, friends. Lord, thank you for the supper that reminds us of your great provision and that beckons us once again to come to the table and, and be honest about our sin. Lord, we fall short. I fall short in so many ways. First John teaches us that if we claim to be without sin, we're liars, Lord. And so we don't claim to be without sin. We acknowledge our need for you. Lord, forgive us for where we've fallen short. And thank you for the, your blood that washes us clean, your body that's broken for us, that we can stand here in your presence fully aware of our shortcoming and yet without shame because we are covered with the righteousness of Jesus. Father, I know that many are here, whether they're watching online or, or they're here in person or they're listening to a podcast as they're out pushing snow in their driveway, whatever it might be, Lord. And they're struggling and they're waiting and they're wondering, when are you going to come? When are you going to deliver me from this trial? I pray that your coming, Lord Jesus, in that first advent would be their hope. Jesus, you came for the poor and the brokenhearted and the captive and those who mourn. And in their discovering of you, they have hope for the future. God, we love you and we trust you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.